My name is Alex Kashuta, and this is the Subversive Podcast. It's an excuse for me to talk to some of the most interesting people on the heterodox to heretic spectrum. Everyone from iconoclast philosophers to rogue scientists to real post-BuzzFeed journalists and our true intellectual elite, Twitter anonymous accounts. In short, they're quite subversive. Enjoy. Today, I'm joined by Apex. Apex is uh, an anonymous poster. Uh, He blogs at the very, very good uh, blog Apex Notes on Substack. And he is also a Wall Street uh, analyst by day. Welcome, Apex. Hi, Alex. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's it's great to have you here. I've I've been following you on on Twitter, where I follow most of the people who eventually end up on this podcast. Um, and I've been reading your very good blog. Uh, as I said, you're you're probably one of the the more meticulous chroniclers of, um, you know, of essentially. I mean, it's called post liberalism now. I think this movement that we're kind of both part of. Uh, um, but um, you're also someone who has a very uh, particular perspective on it. You've got, you're coming from a kind of an atypical angle. This is not NRX. This is not, I don't know, John Gray, you know, enlightened nihilism. You have your own set of beliefs that have led you here. So I'm curious to today kind of just explore that area and, uh, you know, some of your writing, some of your ideas. So yeah, um, I'm curious how how did you get to this point? Like where where did the break with the water we swim in with liberalism happen for you? Yeah, so um, most of the people in this sphere have either kind of come through like Moldbug or Land or or some some avenue near there, uh, and I came from a fairly different one, which was I I was. You know, I was an anarchity in high school who thought he'd solved every problem in the world, you know, as the arrogant 16-year-olds we all, most of us once were, thought. Um, and then around 18, I found this blog. And the blog was called zippycatholic.wordpress.com. And Zippy was an older gentleman. Uh, he'd been blogging since I was maybe five and he had this very interesting perspective on freedom and 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 and, and liberalism and I, it kind of caught my eye at first because i was i was at first like how could anyone believe these things you know this sounds stupid like freedom is obviously good blah 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 and this one line that he had was you know freedom means you know we, we call a society free when we put the right people in jail for the right reasons uh, and if either of those conditions fail, we call it, you know, a tyranny or something like that. And he was gracious enough to spend at least three months putting up with me in the comments of his posts going, you know, blah, blah, blah. How could you believe this? Da, da, da. Until eventually I stopped turtling and realized I just had no response to most of his arguments um, that he everything I would say, he just, he knew he he could just completely deconstruct. And uh, after a few months, I kind of had my ego knocked down a few pegs and decided that I needed to reevaluate my belief system. And that, that really sent me down, 
rabbit hole after rabbit hole um, and eventually kind of discovered a set of authors, a set of thoughts um, that, that kind of led me to this sphere. Uh, I know that specifically what the, the person who got me on Twitter was a T.A. Jackson who uh, I found uh, an obituary because Zippy unfortunately passed away in 2018 and I found an obituary that T.A. Jackson had written and then I basically found my way onto this very interesting sphere on Twitter, especially because, you know, I, I come largely from the left, but was, you know, at least from a number of spaces, broadly excommunicated uh, for a variety of ideological differences. Uh, apparently calling leftists hyper-capitalists in disguise does not make you many friends. Um, so that's kind of been my journey. And, 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 you know, eventually kind of just over the last couple of years, really sitting there and going, okay. And I, and I think this is, this is what post-liberalism means really, at least to me is understanding that when someone says the word freedom, freedom is not a, a thing in and of itself. It, when a person says that something is free, they're referring to a state of affairs that have, you know, certain things are being done, certain things are outlawed, but like these things are good. Freedom is an emotionally potent piece of rhetoric that lets someone impose a moral vision while pretending they're not. And the point is, is that post-liberalism just says, yes, we're all imposing a moral vision, that's fine. We always necessarily do. The question now is which moral vision do we implement? And I think really the last couple of years for me has been a focus on, okay, I, I view these things as good. How do I justify them? You know, can they be justified? Are there certain things in my worldview that I have to, even if I personally like them, get rid of in order to stay consistent? Um, and then, you know, eventually I've, I've reached here uh, talking with the lovely Alex Kashuda on her podcast. Oh. <laughs> um yeah, I mean it's it's uh, it's interesting that you know kind of the, the the concept of freedom was was the one to to kind of break open the door for you. For me, it was mostly the the concept of the individual. Like for me, that at one point it just did not make any sense in any you know conceptual format that was presented to me by kind of secular rationalists. Because essentially, my my entry to this point was through rationalism, through you know. Mm. Outgrowth came out of new atheism, and it just started to, you know, break down in front of my eyes. Um, especially, you know, a concept that I've I've heard you talk about as well. You know, the marketplace of ideas. What's what's your take on the marketplace of ideas? Is it um, is it is it the key to everything? Shall we shall we just churn through the marketplace of ideas and get to truth? Well, I think that the problem with the marketplace of ideas is the problem with most conceptualizations of the market, which is, you know, the most fundamental law of the market is not supply and demand. It's market power. You know, most, most times institutions are shaping the very market that they swim in. Um, they look like they are fulfilling demand because they've created the demand they wish to fulfill. And so, you know, in, in terms of the marketplace of ideas, you know, you have these huge players who can basically decide what is allowed into the marketplace of ideas and what isn't. Um, I think that 
in theory, a public square that is open to all and allows everyone an equal voice, like theoretically, sure makes, you know, it, it sounds very nice, but I don't really think that it's at all realistic. Um, I think that the marketplace of ideas is a no, it's a noble idea. It, it, it represents noble intentions, but it ends up functionally serving as a way to justify the big players kind of shaping that marketplace and going like, oh no, like this is free, blah, blah, blah. Um, you know, in, in that sense, I, I don't think that you're ever going to reach for, you know, truth or, or anything like that through a marketplace of ideas. Yeah, I think that's that's a very good point. You know, the, the fact that, uh, you know, concepts like the marketplace of ideas offer, you know, they, they, they provide cover, they provide a, a comforting story for what's actually happening behind the scenes. Like, you know, this, this whole concept of, you know, science or scientism that we, we now see, um, a, a lot of stuff can happen under under the the guise of uh, of authority um and this authority in a way is you know that's what's what's so insidious about it it does not see itself it's uh you know this this is it pretends to be the mechanism by which we arrive at truth people take it at face value that it is you know this is a place of ideas it's science you know the experts have spoken but it's actually just you know ruled by by you know ham-fisted authoritarians um that have no um oversight have no supervision yeah i mean you know and this is kind of you know how the the over socialization side comes in which is that most people just they they see science they see expert and this label confers legitimacy you know it's like ah this is it is a process it is a person who stands outside of the normal you know democratic battlefield of individuals subjective preferences and is a, somehow an objective arbiter of truth and i think that you know the problem and this is i don't want to call it a martin bailey because i don't think people are doing this consciously but it, it it's you know you'll you'll see people kind of swing where they'll they'll go well the scientific method is very you know it, it's it's not political it's not you know, subjective, it's the scientific method. And you'll go, yeah, but like, the scientific method is not a conscious godlike being doing experiments around the universe. Um, science is a practice done by scientists who are all human, who have their own subjective preferences and biases. And, you know, in that sense, science is always political. Um, and, and I think that, you know, this this boundary between the you know, battle of subjective preferences versus this so supposedly objective realm uh, that that sits outside of it is is really you know a, a way that you can confer legitimacy in a backhanded uh, or underhanded manner. Yeah, absolutely, and yeah, that's the 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 scary part of it is that you know it's. It's so well cloaked, um, but you, you mentioned um, over socialization. Um, this is a, a concept famously associated with Unabomber, with uh, with Uncle Ted. Yep. Um, and well, what can we learn from Ted Kaczynski? You know, isn't he just a, an, an unalloyed uh, disaster? <laughs> is there anything? Crazy nutter. Yeah, crazy nutter. 
<laughs> um, so Ted Kaczynski, uh, you know, his his manifesto is interesting in that it is a very different perspective on the world. Um, and he isn't the first one who, who discussed over socialization. He definitely popularized it in the mainstream consciousness. Um, and to him, effectively, the idea was that you have a society that implants its ideas so deeply inside of people. And these are largely antisocial ideas that when people start grading up against them, they start feeling an immense internal guilt. Um, and that, that was his, his um, you know, his main belief was that people can't even consider rebellion without feeling deeply guilty. And I think there's more at play to it than guilt. Um, but I think that the problem of over-socialization is growing and is already widespread in the sense that, um, you know, when, when someone, someone's entire personality is not defined by their, you know, their socialization, we all have an internal subjectivity. We react to the same things in different manners. And that's true, but the technologies that allow people to socialize us and to propagate narratives have become far more totalizing uh, since the advent of, not even just the advent of the internet, just in the last hundred years um, than they have in any other period of time. And furthermore, you're, you're seeing, you, you kind of saw this brief period of, or you see these with each new technology, this brief period of fracturing, of competition, where the internet emerges and, and in this new wild west, there's a million different viewpoints. And it's, a, you know, there is a kind of marketplace of ideas that is generated because it, it's not really captured yet. Um, and in that sense, you see people, you know, over-socialization kind of relies on a lot of dominant institutions because, you know, those will protect people from being uh, forced to engage with other ideas. That's like a blanket of security. And without these dominant institutions in these new spaces, you see a decline in that over-socialization. But, and we've seen this with the internet, especially in the last 10 years, is that major players have become more dominant. Um, they've shut down dissent. Uh, forums have been shut down, people are censored, they're deplatformed, they're banned. Um, and, and, you know, you're, you're really seeing that the internet has become rather than an engine of competing socialization processes in which one has to deal with a bunch of different viewpoints and may, may very well be in something that approximates a marketplace of ideas. Instead, what we have is, again, a series of dominant institutions um, I mean, you know, six media companies control like 90% of American uh, media. Um, a Amazon Web Services runs a third of the internet. And, you know, if they decided that they didn't want to hold wrong think on their platform, it would be gone instantly. Um, I know Shopify was just like, you can't sell anything relating to MAGA, like on your platform or something. I, someone got banned for that recently, I saw on Twitter. And... It's, it, it's, you know, you, you're now seeing these dominant institutions take over again. And 
I think that what ends up happening is that these dominant institutions, they tell a, a narrative that sounds very nice and you hear it everywhere. It's repeated everywhere. I mean, you know, to the, to the point where you can barely escape it. And then when you come up against something that challenges it, you turtle. I mean, we all turtle naturally when we come up with something that challenges our ideas. But the difference is that the over-socialized person can immediately turn to every television and major website in their vicinity and they get told, oh, no, you're right. Like, hush, it's all good. Like, you'll be fine. You know, don't listen to the mean person on, you know, posting graphs on Twitter. Like, this is, they're wrong. This is the truth. Um, and, and so I, I think that it is a serious problem. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's the the layer that you described, you know, the the essentially the complicating factor being technology. I think that's that's you know a, a lot of people talking about politics on the internet. Uh, oftentimes, I feel like the 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 missing ingredient in a lot of these conversations is you know we really underestimate, even though we talk about it a lot, how much this layer, this meme, you know constantly bombarding memeplex that you kind of create while you're using it and that is weaponized you know in different ways against you or for you or you know it's it's just kind of a this mesh of narrative that we're all embedded in how much that's this influences things because you can't really use like i don't know 17th century political theory uh, when you're essentially in this weird you know in this weird meta space uh, so i think any sort of analysis that needs to you know, that has any chance of being at least a little bit correct has to has to account for this. And I mean, maybe this is me being biased because I'm very online, uh, you know, <laughs> painfully. Aren't online. we all? Yeah, but it's um, it's still, you know, I can see this and I see this, you know, like, you know, I can see this in my mom. She's she's painfully online and she's like, you know, a, you know, a kind of an, old, an older lady in, in Eastern Europe. Like this is this is either coming for everyone or it's already there. So it's uh, it's it's really uh, it's really interesting. Um, I'm, I'm curious, like, you know, you were you know, we were talking about over socialization. Um, the is there is there kind of a way to. Yeah, it's it's hard to talk about about fixes, but because um, I've been thinking a lot about you know the the purposeful use of stigma, um, and it feels to me like in a, in a way over socialization is kind of an inter internalizing um, the norms of of society in a way that's toxic for the for the individual that internalizes them, or or at least uh, you know gives them a little bit too much crime stop for their own good. Um, I'm curious what you think about the the role of stigma in society. I mean, is it is it only something that that can be useful at a at a local level, or you know, does it just become toxic when it's when it works at scale? I mean, I, I think that stigma can can work at any given level. I, I think that you know the problem with talking about fixes like this is that many times. Um, it's one of those inconvenient times when great man theory rears its ugly head again, um, which is that in, in many cases, what you have is you have a technology or an institution that could be used, as you mentioned, a memeplex could be used for or against you. And it comes down to the, uh, the values and interests of the people on top, or, or at least just people in general in, in the institution. Um, and and so you know in in terms of stigma i mean i i think that you know 
stigmatizing something is is fine. Um, I, I think that you know what you have is, is you have, um, and I'll I'll kind of trace this towards a, the question of moral habit, which is you know when when you're younger, you you don't reach your hand into the cookie jar because your mom will smack your hand if you do, um, and you don't like getting your hand smacked. It hurts. And that's that's the entirety of your of your you know belief when you're six is I'm just like no like I don't I don't want my mom to smack me, and then as you get older you begin to understand that there is a reason behind this, um, and you know it's like okay like my mom doesn't want me to eat only cookies because I'll feel terrible and I'll have acne and I'll gain weight and you know everything will suck, um, even fewer girls will talk to me good lord, um, but like you you eventually like you have to learn and so i think that it's totally fine if a society stigmatizes things so long as when someone questions the stigma you can come back to this and be like yeah like there's a reason why um one thing that i always found very um concerning about you know the left as i was kind of gradually distancing myself from it was that a lot of these things didn't really seem to have rationales behind them or had very weak rationales and and many times the rationale for one thing would contradict the rationale for another it was like this jury rigged bending themselves into a pretzel uh kind of of, of logic and so you know i think that it's totally fine for a society to stigmatize something i just think it has to have a good reason for it you know i mean and i think that what we're seeing now on the internet is, is you know, I, ironically, uh, the, the people who preach, I guess it's not ironic, it's obvious that, you know, people who preach acceptance um, are, are just as stigmatizing as those who don't. Um, and so, you know, I think that we, I, I don't actually think that we live in a society of, of very open acceptance. I think that we live with just a very different set of stigmas um, and those stigmas are enforced but they're, they, you know, they're called, you know, acceptance as opposed to stigma, um, you know, but call them whatever you want. That's what they are. So I think that every society will stigmatize things. Um, the question just comes back to what are, what is being stigmatized? Why is it being stigmatized? Do you have a good reason for it? Um, you know, in, in the same way that you can never have a morally neutral government you can, or a morally neutral society, you're going to have stigmas. Um, the question is, is, you know, does, does, you know, is the stigma there to benefit you or is the stigma there in an antisocial manner? Yeah, that's, that's, that's a, a, a great way to put it. Because um, I feel like at, at this point, we've, we've reached the, the kind of the, the, the level where, intolerance is kind of the last the last barrier that gets stigmatized and because essentially this concept of intolerance is is infinitely expandable um essentially it's just regime enemies Ac actions of regime enemies fall under the concept of intolerance and that could be essentially anything it's just very much friend enemy politics um and because it's you know it's this banner of intolerance uh there's, there's not really 
any way to to define it precisely because it's essentially just defined by the people enforcing it. So it's it's again very insidious because it it doesn't see itself or at least it doesn't want to see itself. It's like okay, this is this is the 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 final truth and uh you know there's it, it it's kind of impervious to its own ideological uh level. Yeah. I, I will I mean, you know, in the same way it's it's this the the same kind of problem that you have with freedom, equality, etc., which is it's you know tolerance is not a thing in and of itself. Uh, you know, really, it's tolerance to do what? Um, it's you know you have to be. It's tolerance of something. Um, you know, you can't have pure tolerance. That doesn't make any sense. It's tolerance of a thing, and so you know, generally, what you'll end up seeing is as as you explained very clearly is. Tolerance and intolerance will basically affect, will, will be reduced to meaning friends and enemies of the regime. Uh, Blue Empire will decide who does, who should who is performing wrong think and who is a, a good and loyal ally, and will attach tolerance or, or intolerance labels to to these different groups. Um, and and so, you know, this is uh, a rather serious problem. Um, because, you know, again, it's people become so attached to this abstraction. They become attached to the idea of tolerance, the idea of freedom in most cases, because these things sound nice, but they are empty. So we fill them with the nice things that we like, you know, it's like, yeah, like tolerance is when, you know, my my girlfriend does something that I'm not really a fan of, but like I love her, so I tolerate. Like that's and it's it's totally fine because then I associate this with the positive feelings of loving my girlfriend, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, or uh, you know any anything like that, and so you get this very nice feeling on the inside, but then other people weaponize that, um, and then they they weaponize that you know that emotionally potent rhetoric for their own purposes and what you end up getting is you end up getting this very anti-social friend enemy distinction here um and and you know these empty labels really you know again kind of coming back to what i think that post-liberalism has to do is it has to you know is i i always tell people like just get rid of the labels you know, like the labels are, they're, they're, they in and of themselves are meaningless. Like political freedom is nonsense. It doesn't, it doesn't have, like it literally does not mean anything. Um, what you are, you're, when I ask a communist what freedom means and I ask a anarcho-capitalist what freedom means, they give me two very different answers. And there's no real freedom that I can appeal to. I can't call up God and ask, yeah, which one of these is the correct definition and he's not going to tell me, um, you know, so really it's just deciding what is, what, what should be tolerated. In other words, what should be good or what is good and what is, what is unacceptable. Um, and, and really, you know, it's the return to uh, uh, acknowledging liberalism's false retreat from morality and just saying, rather than pretending to be neutral we're just going to acknowledge that every society implements its morality and we have to ask which morality we want to implement yeah yeah i, I completely agree with that and that's i feel like where the 
where the stickiness of the subject comes up because people are very, you know, reticent and very, they, they push back quite a lot to the idea that you can even have discussions about, you know, not necessarily objective morality, at least like functional morality for, for a society. It doesn't even have to be, you know, religiously inspired. The idea that you you want to lay down a set of 10 laws and say, okay, this this is a society and you don't embed, I don't know, a progress clause within these laws, you know, which would essentially transform it straight into another liberal. It's, it's just very hard to to understand. You can see how deep this this goes, you know, the idea of, of progress, the idea that, you know, if we can make antibiotics that, you know, save people from uh, tooth infections, uh, we're going to invent the perfect regime as well, because th these are the same two things. Um, I think that's, that's, I don't know, for me, that's been the, the biggest pushback, you know, it's like, okay, don't, don't even mention it, because <laughs> it's, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's hot water. I know, what, what's your um, relationship to the idea of progress? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that, you know, you probably have a much more uh, serious engagement with that just because of where you come from with the whole rationalist background. Um, I mean, I was never, never really a member of those of those communities. But, you know, I mean, the left will sit there and go, you know, ah, we've we've liberated ourselves from the cloud of of uh, of tradition and, and irrationality, blah, blah, blah you know and then you look at what what these people argue for and you're like eh, i'm not really sure you've been liberated from much irrationality my friend um but in terms of progress i mean i i think that the problem is that human beings don't evolve on the same time scale that technology evolves on and in that manner um there is there are insights into the human condition that you will find in the Iliad that still hold up today. Um, and so I, you know, I think that the problem with progress is, you know, again, this, this idea that we move inexorably forwards. Um, I mean, I, I think that it, it should be obvious that, that's not always the case. And I, and I think that in, even in terms of technological progress, um, I, I fear, and this is something that I talk about, you know, with people in the environmentalist movement is, it seems as if we, we have an obsession with over-engineering solutions, substandard solutions to problems that our ancestors had figured out 500, 1,000, 5,000 years ago. Um, you know, in, 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 in that sense, I, I worry that, you know, the, the concept of progress is just a, a, a way, you know, it, it's a form of techno-utopianism, uh, you know, and that we're, we're just going to keep moving forward, or this time the innovation will be all positive, there won't be any negative side effects, we promise, we swear, we pinky swear, you know, like it'll, it'll it, this time it'll all work. And I... Am, am always skeptical of those kinds of things. Um, I'm not, I, I wouldn't necessarily say that I'm uh, a Burkean or any kind of a conservative in that manner, in the sense that, you know, okay, like, um, you know, it's, we shouldn't, 
we should not change or, or you know attempt to change much of society um, simply because we, you know society is this massive animal and we don't really know how it works. I'm I'm sympathetic to that at times, but I I do believe that one can look at a society and 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 at least you know build like I I think that there is an objective morality independent of any society's particular history. Um, and, and so, you know, I, I think that there is good reason to be skeptical of progress. I think there's simultaneously good reason to be skeptical of an appeal to tradition itself. Um, you know, uh, I'm a, a very interesting centrism going on uh, on my side right now, obviously, but it's, it's, you know, it, it's one of those things where at least personally, I don't really see people pushing the progress angle as much recently, at least. I think that a lot of people have become very disillusioned with our society. And it's, you know, at least for a lot of people in it, it's progressive decline. I think that a lot of people have looked at the last 20 years, or at the very least, the last 15, and said, this kind of blows, um, you know, and uh, you know, people are getting poorer. And, you know, I think that there's a lot of skepticism about the idea of progress, just because it doesn't look like we're progressing anymore. Um, I, I think that what I see more often, at least from people who I know have more of a background in, in the rationalist or libertarian spheres is, is part of what you mentioned earlier was the idea of, you know, people aren't even, aren't even willing to, to question, okay, well, if we have to, you know, how do we impose a, a moral ideal? What does that look like? Um, and I mean, I, I think that's going to be a, a very big debate. I don't think that post-liberalism is ever going to be a, a unified monolithic movement. I think it's going, it, it, if it is to expand, I think it acknowledges the failures of liberalism, but then there will be a variety of different moral viewpoints uh, and justifications that are present afterwards. I mean, I know that I'm probably much further to the left than most of the people in this sphere, just, you know, my background and my personal values and beliefs. Um, but, you know, that, that, and that, that comes out as disagreements over what particular things are justified or not, but it's an awareness that these are moral arguments. I think that one of the problems with liberalism is the idea that being unaware that your so-called neutral or natural position, you know, oh, this is human nature, this is, we're not imposing anything, or this is, everyone consented to this, or, or whatever your made up justification is, these things are impositions of your morality. And I think that the problem is that so many people do not want to think about that. And they end up believing they are neutral, they are objective, um, when we are all imposing our moral vision. And the problem, of course, is that the moral vision or visions of liberalism is intensely antisocial and broken. Um, you know, I mean, this is, it's what I rant about every week.
um, is, you know, the, the worship of autonomy, uh, of, of, of liberty, freedom, equality, etc., which are all reducible to autonomy, um, end up doing terrible things to, to not only society, but to ourselves. Um, yeah, that was, that was and, my next question. Yeah. I know you've, uh, you've written a lot about autonomy. Um, and I, I think, I think you're, you're on the money with it because it is, like you said, everything kind of collapses into this one value and it feels like that's, that's also where the nervous hit, you know, that's the, the one key value that people that say that they don't have any values or that they, you know, they're, they're, they're neutral and, and, you know, they're just kind of floating around in the free marketplace of ideas, you know, gravitating towards the, the newest form of truth. Um, it's, it's coincidentally almost always on the side of autonomy. So um, tell me a little bit about why, why is autonomy corrosive and why isn't it, you know, a good master key for our civilization? Yeah, so autonomy is one of, I, I would say it is one of the back, like cornerstone values of our society. And, and, and you, you really see this in, in a very understandable uh, reaction during the enlightenment you know the rise of this idea of self-responsibility um in opposition to institutions that at the time had lost their legitimacy um you know you you see this in um in descartes you see this in kant you see this in spinoza you see this in hegel you know, and, and all throughout the ages, uh, you know, from those periods onward, you see this idea of the individual has to think for themselves. Um, I mean, that is, that is the core of Descartes attempts to prove God by having you think for yourself in the meditations. Kant's what is enlightenment um, is described, you know, explicitly states um, how enlightenment is man freeing himself from um, the authority of the, or the unthinking authority of others, that one must be critical, one must use one's own mind, um, that you, know, you, you see the rise of a particular kind of reason. Um, so Charles Taylor distinguished between two forms of rationality. He called them substantive and procedural. And so substantive rationality um, is normally associated with the pre-modern era, that one is rational if one is in tune with the logos, if one is in tune with reality. You see this a lot with a lot of the ancient Greeks, that someone is uh, rational, that they make sense when they are in tune with the truth. It's kind of like and, a Taoist uh, perception of, of kind of... Yeah, I, I mean, one of, one of the very... Uh, the, the examples that I like to use of it rearing its head again is, you know, when, when a lot of times when people discuss science or they discuss, uh, you know, the environment, for instance, like how you, you're an idiot if you can't see this, you know, like it's, it's, it, is, it is a reference to the truth and you are somehow being irrational if you are not aligned with it. Um, but with the rise of modernity, you saw the dominance, at least in, in, at points in time and in different parts of society, you saw the dominance of procedural rationality, which was one is being rational if one's thinking through things the correct way. Um, it, doesn't, it doesn't matter if you necessarily come 
to the truth at the end of your thoughts, but you have to be following like these rules of rationality. And, you know, you, you, you see this in, as this rise of self-responsibility, as this rise of you have to kind of take charge of your own life. And that's a, it, it's, it's a very appealing sentiment. Um, and, and to an extent, it is correct. I mean, we can't just rely on other people. Um, we have to be able to, you know, come to, the, come to terms with, you know, our, our beliefs, our values on, on our own terms. Um, and so you, you see this, the idea of self-responsibility eventually turn into autonomy, which, you know, you, you see with, with Kant and Mill and Spinoza and, and broadly speaking, autonomy is, is, you know, you see different variants of it, but it's the idea that one should be able to do whatever one wants so long as it doesn't harm anyone or as long as there is consent uh, amongst everyone who it affects. Um, and the, the problem, of course, is that these concepts of harm and consent do not hold up to anything longer than 30 seconds of questioning. Um, you, you start poking at them and they collapse in on, on themselves. I don't think people realize that Mill himself, you know, the guy who came up with the harm principle himself, later on in On Liberty, completely undermines his own argument when he starts talking about etiquette, to the point where you, if you read the entirety of his work, you come to realize that in something causing harm to someone else is neither necessary nor sufficient for government to get involved. Um, and I mean, pretty much every extreme variant of, of the harm principle, you know, the non-aggression principle, et cetera, um, carries on this fatal flaw within it uh, and, and effectively collapses under questioning. And so the problem is that autonomy cannot stand as any kind of serious moral guiding value or virtue. Um, but and this, again, is where, you know, post-liberalism comes in, is that rather than going like, okay, well, then we should all just submit to the church or to a king again. That's not really what I'm arguing for, and I don't think it's what you're arguing for either, or most other people are in this space. Some are, but most aren't. Um, rather, it is an understanding that when we talk about autonomy, we are, just, we are saying, I believe I should be free to do X, Y, and Z. You know, X, Y, and Z do not cause harm to people. Really what I'm saying is that X, Y, and Z are good. And I think that in most cases, there are coherent ways to justify X, Y, and Z without freedom. And maybe you can't justify Z along with X and Y. Maybe there are certain things that you cannot hold on to when you start looking or, or digging into them. And that's fine as long as one is honest with oneself and one accepts that that may happen. Um, but the, the problem, of course, is that autonomy, more than just not acting as a moral virtue, more than not being able to act as a moral virtue, it does something far more antisocial in that it puts every relationship, everything that we experience, it lays it at the altar of utility. 
and it says you you know there we if if autonomy is truly a virtue and if it is truly the highest virtue then what we are saying is that there should be no relationship no situation um no state of affairs that one is put in that one does not like and did not consent to um and and so when when you look at the systems that support autonomy which is not just you know capitalistic freedom um but also the left who brings autonomy again to a point where i would argue that they're more hyper capitalistic than they're than the most devout neoliberal the problem comes when now all of these spaces the family religion tradition um you know all of these spaces are commodified they are turned into spaces and situations where one only only has to interact with them so long as one wants to and that's a you that that's utility it's the value form uh it is it is turning everything into a commodity and it is ironic that the very reason why a communist can never institute a gift economy why they could never have a communist society is because of this value of autonomy that you can't have a gift economy when every single situation you're in is a commodified one i mean the closest thing to a gift economy that we have are religious temples and monasteries very if anyone is interested there is some very interesting work on like monastic economics very cool sphere but you only really have these kinds of gift economies and these non-commodified spaces where one understands that there is a higher value than one's own autonomistic pleasure um and and that that higher value does not have to be god doesn't have to be religious doesn't have to be the state probably shouldn't be the state um it it can be just being embedded in a community uh valuing your family friends um closeness um all all of these things you know that there's a variety of different ways to to resolve this tension but the problem of course is that a huge number of people hold to autonomy out of fear and they hold to autonomy out of fear because they are afraid that when they are forced to look into the mirror of morality apologies my window's open if you look into the mirror of morality you will not like what you see that you will realize that there are certain things that you want that are not good there are certain things that you do that make you not the best person and people don't like realizing that they're not a good person no one does most of us would much rather all of us i think besides maybe a handful of saints around the world all of us would much rather dig deeper and deeper into self delusion than we would acknowledge that we have done something wrong and need to not necessarily repent but reform ourselves at, at to some degree um and in that sense yeah sorry 
No, no, no. I, I, I completely agree. I feel like one one of the, the most interesting cases for this and kind of like the, the pinnacle of, of personal autonomy nowadays and obviously a hot button issue is, is abortion, um, which uh, I'm curious what your stance is from, from, from this perspective on, on abortion. Because it is, you know, it, it, there's there's kind of like, you know, there's overlapping autonomies in there, but uh, obviously one one overrides the other, at least in, in, in the concept in the modern conception. Yeah, so I, I actually, funny enough, on, on my old Medium blog, I'd written a, I think it's like 9,000 words or something. It was a almost like a screed, but um, effectively, I was pro-choice for a very long time, just because, you know, it's like, yeah, it's whatever, you know, it's, it's autonomy, do what you want with your body, blah, blah, blah. And I eventually came to, you know, especially after I had gotten my ego knocked down a few pegs, I, you know, I, I, I really decided that I was going to start interrogating my own beliefs a little bit more, um, not just go like, oh, well, everyone around me is telling me I'm right, so I'm, I'm probably fine. Um, you know, so, so I, I um, really started going through it and, and I ended up at a pretty solid pro-life position. Um, largely, you know, what, what I effectively argued was that when you look at, you know, there's kind of like four main classes of arguments on the pro-choice side, I think. And, you know, I, I broke them down to autonomy, utility, fairness, and personhood. And really the only one that stands even a bit of chance of, of holding up to scrutiny is the personhood arguments. And my, you know, my personal belief came down to really, um, really like two principles. Um, and I, I think that these principles also, funny enough, kind of come from a variety of, um, perceptions or, or perspectives that are, that, are, that are pretty common amongst the left, I, I think, broadly. Um, but effectively, my argument was that I don't, I, I think that we should be following the atrocities of the 20th century. I think that we should be extremely cautious about any definition of person that excludes any subset of the biologically human. Um, I, I think that there is a that there is a slippery slope, which you know, as I've written, is not a fallacy. Um, there is a slippery slope to looking at people and, and deciding that they're not really people; they're just things. And I think again, this ties into the dehumanization, the objectification, the commodification of others that comes along with autonomy. I think that ultimately, um, and, and, and this is why I think that you're right, that, that abortion sits as such a, a hot topic issue because it's kind of the, 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 the crux of the issue of, is it autonomy or do we you know, acknowledge that there is, um, you know, because autonomy demands dehumanization, is there a, uh, a, a, a definition of personhood that demands that dehumanization cannot happen, that objectification cannot happen, that these are full people, they deserve respect, because that, that instantly 
puts it above autonomy. It instantaneously demotes autonomy from that top virtue and says, other things have to come first. And, and I really think that that is why you get, um, that is why you get this, this such a strong debate. I mean, I think the other, the other side, of course, is again, the, uh, you know, I mean, that, that's a more philosophical side. The other side is, is the more visceral one of, you know, people do not want to be, to, to put, you know, what, once you start putting boundaries on, on sexual morality, that kind of implies boundaries on, on lots of other things and no one wants to open that Pandora's box. And so it becomes this massively entrenched, uh, you know, it becomes trench warfare, you know, the, the positions and the, pers- you know, percentages of the population who hold each position haven't changed in like 30 years, probably longer. Um, but at the end of the day, I, I think that, that that's really what it comes down to is, is this, the, the, this argument that, you know, is, is there, you know, are, are all, you know, because a, a person is a moral category that demands a certain degree of respect. Um, you know, human is a biological one. And so if, if everyone who is biologically human, everything that is biologically human is a person, then we have a really, you know, if we take that seriously, you know, and, and, and plenty, of, plenty of times in our society, we do not take our moral values very seriously. But if we were to take that seriously, it instantly demotes autonomy. In, the, in that moment, liberalism dies effectively um, because it can no longer hold itself. I mean, it, it's it's a it's a dead man walking right now, but it, it becomes accepted that it cannot hold, um, and so you have a a very strong, very fierce debate there. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I I think that from from those two angles, the uh, you know I don't want any limitations on myself, the visceral feeling of of you know screw you, go away, to the philosophical side of you are looking at is autonomy that highest virtue or not? You combine them and that's what makes it such a battlefield. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's there's also the idea that, you know, this this particular case really is hard for, you know, the supposed rationalists, you know, because uh, a lot of times, you know, if you, if you ask a rationalist, most, most are very much, um, you know, pro-choice, uh, you know, the arguments usually, you know, either a clump of cells or something, but it's, it's very obvious from the nature of this, that it's, it's, profoundly philosophical it's a metaphysical argument and you can't really run away from the fact that it is Uh, and i feel like that's why people try to dismiss it and there's not really any truth claim that can be made about the 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 personhood status of a of a clump of cells slash child um and some one one person would say okay it's a child's conception uh the other person would say that you know it's a clump of cells until the the moment it screams um, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's really clear that there's a leap of faith in there. And I feel like that's, that's what makes people very, very uncomfortable about it. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that one of the, you know, I think that the delusion of, of, you know, the idea that you can kind of have delicate, like 
democracy or the public square can, or the, or the marketplace of ideas can kind of come to truth only really works if everyone kind of agrees on metaphysical priors to begin with, you know? And the problem is that that has never been the case and it probably never will. Um, you know, I mean, sure, there were certain societies that everyone genuinely believed in a particular religion. Um, and, and in that sense, or in, in the exact same interpretation of that religion, in that sense, yes, you could have had a marketplace of ideas operate within a small village. But at scale, you just, you don't have that kind of unity. And I think that, you know, again, I mean, someone can look at me and go, like, I, you know, someone can say, I think we've progressed past the 20th century atrocities. I don't think that'll ever happen again. And I can call them delusional all I want, but that's, they're allowed to have that belief. And in that sense, my argument wouldn't hold, um, or at least the, the visceral side of my argument wouldn't really impact them. Um, yeah. So the, the, it, the it's, Steven it's Pinker, yeah, the, the Steven Pinker argument. Yeah. I think the, the, the problem with that argument is that, again, it is blind to its kind of millenarianism. You know, there's literally, even in all, in all that argument, I mean, it's, um, it, at best, it's a statistical series where, you know, it shows that some, some things, I have to say some cherry-picked things, a few of them have improved in a certain way. And there's kind of a, I don't know, you can, you can draw a trend line, but that's, that's anything after the, the, the point where, you know, we've stopped collecting data, you know, the point that the book was written is a free-for-all. There is no reason, <laughs> you know, there's no good reason presented for why it's, uh, you know, the series shall continue. So it's, uh, yeah, that, that's, that's the problem that I have with that. It's like, you know, okay, you don't necessarily explain why, uh, why this is so, except for, oh, it has been up to this point. Okay. Yeah, you know, I mean, I mean, I, I think, and and I wrote about, you know, how you know, the worship of the lime, you know, um, in and and Robert Kennedy had a great quote, you know, which is, you know, even if we act to erase material poverty, there's another greater task: is to confront the poverty of satisfaction, purpose, and dignity that afflicts us all. And there's there's just I, I feel personally that as material satisfaction has supposedly increased and i don't really think it has you know i i really think that if if one you know generally i am i am as someone who you know does work in finance i am always extremely skeptical when i see a report that just throws graphs at me generally if you're throwing graphs at me it's because you can't explain your position which is because you're wrong um that that tends to be my heuristic it doesn't always hold you know, there are certain analysts that just don't like writing words, you know, but that's generally my position. And I think that in a lot of cases, these are used to hide the fact that, you know, our economy is not, you know, material, po material poverty is, is increasing, um, that, that the, our economy is not working for a large number of people. Um, and in that sense, even that argument doesn't really hold up. Um, and, and, and let alone the fact that, you know, the, these measures of material poverty measure everything except that which makes life worth living. Um, you know, so it's, it's, it's a problem. And, and I mean, I think that there is a, 
a um, a, a serious issue in terms of kind of using these statistical, you know, it, it's in the same, it, it's very similar to how you use, well, experts say this. It's kind of a very similar usage to that. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that there is a, the, the, the lack of meaning uh, in, in our lives is very profound. Uh, and, and to, to, my favorite philosopher, Charles Taylor, I'm going to keep referencing him, um, mentioned that there's kind of a difference in pre-modern versus modern crises of meaning or existential crises. You know, in, in the pre-modern world, the, the existential crisis is that, oh, dear God, I'm not living up to the standard. I'm going to go to hell. I'm going to get punished. You know, it's, it's I'm not being good enough. And the modern crisis is that I don't even know what good is. You know, I don't, I don't even know what standard I should be, you know, trying to pursue. I could be doing really well and I could also be doing really poorly. Um, and that it is this kind of, you know, that that's, that's the new kind of, you know, there's no ground anymore. I'm kind of just float. I'm, I'm falling through the air and I'm not really sure. Yeah. You know, it's a very really interesting point yeah it's like there's it's almost like there's a bunch of ropes hanging and i'm falling and i don't know which one to grab because one of them will catch me and one of them will open a door and an alligator is going to come out and eat me you know it's 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 this profound uncertainty about where i stand in the world um do you, do you think that um that's that's one of the reasons why uh, a lot of these, you know, kind of rebellion movements that we see today are essentially still rebelling against the, you know, the the, the hollow husk of a former, um, a former anything that could be constrained as oppressive. Like, you know, you essentially if you if you ask a, a kind of a liberal libertarian kind of anarchist person, like you know what what they're what they're fighting against, it's usually some caricature of something that hasn't really been around for a long time. Like there needs to be some some opposition. So, you know that I think the, the 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 caricature creates that meaning, creates that opposition, even if it's you know if it doesn't really exist in the world anymore. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I think that there is there is a general perception um, or, or or value in modernity, and you kind of see this with Bacon. I, I think he's probably the paradigm of this of the idea that one one is one gives one's life meaning by acting as part of this grand journey towards a better world um, that, you know, I may not see it, but I'm working towards this better system. And, and I think that this grand narrative of progress um, is, is kind of, you know, what these people are, are, um, are, are, are really fighting for. I mean, I, I think that when it comes to, you know, the, the, the caricatures, I think that what they're doing is that they realize subconsciously that, you know, they start running up against the constraints of society and they go, why are these constraints here? And they need, they, they want to get rid of them. And in that sense, you have to delegitimize them. And so you, you know, an easy way to delegitimize them is to point is to attribute them to some kind of backwards thing that should be that should not be in a progressive society 
um, and and whether or not that is the case, because generally these people do not run up against a, a constraint and go, hmm, I wonder why that's there, and then go to the library and read a bunch of history or theory to try to figure it out. They just say, I, you know, autonomy is, is the water we swim in. They go, why is there a constraint here? This is stupid. And they take a very surface level analysis of it. Um, I mean, I really think that that's, that's, that, that's what, what, what is going in there. I mean, I think that in general, in many ways, these characters become a way to make sense of the fact that changes do not appear to be making their lives better. That, you know, you look, a change occurs and maybe a constraint is eliminated, but now there's new constraints that just popped up or the the constraint is gone and they're not any happier than they used to be. Why is this? And, and I think that I, acknowledging that maybe the constraint was there for a reason and that I was wrong would undermine their whole worldview. So you construct caricatures to go, it's not that we did the wrong thing, it's that we haven't done the right thing enough. We, we just need to keep digging this hole and eventually we're going we're gonna to hit gold. You know, like that, that's kind of the mindset. And that's where I think a lot of those caricatures come from. Yeah, that, that reminds me of the, the whole discussion around sex work and uh, probably the, the most vitriolic hate that I ever get on the internet is from libertarian feminists who are very, very much into the uh, emancipation of women through sex work. Um, and they, uh, the, the, the thing that they keep bringing up is that, okay, you know, sex work would be absolutely fine if we completely eliminated all stigma related to to sex and obviously to sex work um and i mean i i don't buy that but i feel like it's it's an it's a good example of what you were laying out there like the idea that okay you know the problem with this thing that has myriad dysfunctions from you know trafficking to mental disorders to like essentially you know pedophilia everything you know it has has tentacles and every evil you can imagine the problem with it is that it's not liberalized enough we just didn't inject enough freedom into it the second we we completely drop all the all the ties that bind um it would, will turn into a utopia because the only problem obviously is that there's not enough autonomy there's not enough freedom in in the system yeah exactly um and you know uh, i actually i wrote about specifically you know prostitution and pornography a week ago and i mean it 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 is it's remarkable because you end up kind of looking at this and, and, and asking, you know, like, well, what is empowerment? What is, what is emancipation? What is all this stuff? And like emancipation to turn myself into an object doesn't really seem very empowering. Um, and it's, it, it kind of, it comes down again, you know, to this uh, obsession with autonomy, you know, the autonomy demands alienation. The alienation is antisocial and eventually the commodification of the body is a particularly heinous case of alienation because you're alienating yourself from your own body. You know, it's like, it's like, well, you know, you, you get this situation in which an individual almost psychologically amputates themselves um, where, you know, we, we're, we're now, we become just a ghost in a machine. Um, you know, th this idea that our body has become an instrument of pleasure for, ourselves or for someone else and 
um, you know, ourselves are, are somehow distinct from our body, that we are no longer embodied creatures. Just what we are, we are embodied creatures. We're not machines. We're not spirits temporarily trapped in this decaying piece of meat clay. Um, so it's, it, it's, it is one of those things where, you know, again, you, you kind of have to uh, almost do a, a, a reductio, uh, you know, an, an absurd reduction of their position in order to get them going. You know, I mean, I always, you know, point out, you know, when people say there's not enough autonomy, I always, you know, the opening is, you know, should someone be able to, to kidnap and, and murder a child? And it's like, well, obviously not. Like, that's terrible. That's horrible. And it's like, okay, well, like, there are people out there who genuinely want to do that. That is, that, that is a fundamental desire of their being and you go okay well there's like there's certain things you can't do and then eventually you kind of break through the you know you get them to start falling back on harm and consent then you have to demonstrate why neither of those operate very well um i mean on the consent side has been you know ironically a a, a beating you know it's been a drum that radical feminists have beat for for decades is you know consent is not a a valid thing um in this sphere of, of objectification and of, of power relations and all of that you know there, there's lots of arguments about there but you know i mean harm as well just completely collapses and so eventually you're kind of left with nothing and i think that's where again you then have to come in and demonstrate um okay, like, yes, you know, autonomy isn't the thing, but like a lot of the things you like or you think are good are still good. Like they're actually good things. Not all of them. Some of them are very clearly wrong, but a lot of them are still good things. Like I'm not asking you to completely reorient yourself. I'm asking you to kind of acknowledge that a few places on your map of the world were not accurate and just kind of rewrite it a little bit to understand better what is going on. Um, you know, and, and, and I think that in that case, you can, you know, you can slowly get people to understand these things, but I, I think that in a lot of cases, it is a slow process. It's one that I mean, we're, we're, we're immersed in from the moment that we're born. The moment we go to, you know, I mean, in America, at least, like, freedom, you know, America, like, that's just, it, it's, it's, you're, you're immersed in it from the moment, you know, you're, you go to school, you, your parents were immersed in it, so you're immersed in it at home, like, it's, it is a profound uh, background value, I mean, most people do not think of taking the pH of the water that we all swim in, um, and, and realizing that, oh, wow, this is just pure acid. Um, and maybe that's why everything is getting burnt away. Yeah, I think there's there's also kind of a, a blindness to, to other perspectives, just because we've, you know, not only, you know, is is this essentially you have this illusion, you know, when you exist as a, as a human and, you know, even outside of the, you know, capitalist, uh, you know, state context, um, you feel yourself being the driver of the flesh suit. And it feels like, you know, the, 
the the context that we've let grow around that illusion really just reinforces it. So I think it's that's also part of why people see it. For for them, it's really hard to break out of that that mindset that UK, you know, this is an illusion. It does take a little bit of of thought and a little bit of um, wrestling with the consequences of things around you. Um, and also, I think you made a really good point of the fact that. Uh, once once you buy into autonomy, once you go down the track of autonomy, chase autonomy, um, you also kind of accumulate these moral injuries that some part of you knows, you know, this is not okay. Um, but you're kind of down the track at, at one point, you know, and you kind of have to justify your decisions and justify them under the, the, the banner of autonomy. And it's really hard to face that. So I see this with, with a lot of, you know, older women or something who've kind of were feminism pilled early in their lives and uh, you know kind of went down a certain track and now they're really discombobulated and they're they're doubling down and it's it's i don't know it's a it's a tough one um do you think that this kind of illusion of of uh individualism is also part of it i mean I don't, I don't know if I would go that far because, you know, I think that there needs to be an understanding that we are individuals, you know, yes, we are, we are affected by our, our surroundings. We are, we are embedded in a community. Like, yes, you know, you, you can't, you cannot understand me uh, absent or, or uh, you know, removed from the context of my family, my community, um, you know, this corner of Twitter. You can't, you just, you can't understand me absent those contexts. And that's true, but we do all still have an internal subjectivity. And I think that in, in, in many cases, you know, there is a, there, there should be, um, to, to, to some degree, a, a celebration of that subjectivity. Um, you know, I, I think that's where so much, beautiful creation comes from in in in, in our world this is a celebration of that um so I, I i mean i i think that there's plenty of different ways of understanding the individual as being simultaneously embedded in a community and inextricable from that community while also understanding them as being a unique node as being more than just a, a, a replaceable cog in that community. Um, and so in, in that sense, um, I, I think that, you know, that there's, there's a difference between understanding um, the, 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 the failure of autonomy as a moral guiding virtue and individualism as, as a stance. I mean, I think that, you know, you, you kind of have to make sure that you don't jump between or, or fall into either the under-socialized or over-socialized traps. Individuals are not purely, you know, functions of inputs from society that they churn up and then they, they pop out. And individuals are not these wholly independent entities that, you know, they come together to sign a contract and create society, you know, or, or, you know, each one of them has purely independent preferences that are expressing in the marketplace. Like all of these are nonsense, obviously. Um, but there, there is a, I, I feel that it, it over-socialized and under-socialized 
systems are easy to model and in many cases become very, you know, very appealing in that sense. I mean, I know that the, basically the entirety of economics is profoundly under-socialized because a properly socialized individual, a model of that would become immeasurably complex. Um, now, the response is that the only group of experts that have a worse accuracy with predictions than economists are weather people. Um, and at least weather people are mostly attractive. I don't think anyone has touched themselves thinking of Paul Krugman. Um, so uh, forgive the curtness. So, um, you know, there's the problem is that in a lot of cases, these models lead us astray. Um, and, and I think that sitting there and, and looking at, you know, the individualist versus collectivist versus maybe communitarian things end up kind of becoming a bit obfuscatory in that they end up, you know, reducing themselves to vari variants of autonomy. You know, someone's like, I'm an individualist, and it basically just means I believe in autonomy. But like in terms of, you know, should we respect the positions of a particular person? Like, yes, of course. You know, I mean, that's, that's, it comes down to why I think that free speech and the public square, both physical and virtual, are so important. I mean, I think that there is a, there, there is a, a, um, a gradient there in terms of making sure that we don't, because you don't want to, you know, it's, it's not, you don't want to feed the false dichotomy that we're, we're picking between a society of antisocial autonomy worship or 1984. You know, like, like that, those aren't our two, only two options. And I think that in many cases, the individualism debate kind of paints those as like, well, we don't want tyranny, so we're just going to have to live with it. And it's like, that's not at all um, true, uh, let alone the fact that, you know, plenty of the societies that we perceive as free are tyrannical. You just don't see the coercion because the society's rules align with what you think is right. Um, but put someone else in there and they'll view it as tyrannical. Um, so, no, I mean, I think that debate frequently misses the point, um, but I do think that there needs to be an awareness of both the individual as a unique subjective entity uh, and, and full person, uh, you know, with, with moral rights uh, in that sense, along with the, the fact that each and one, you know, we live in a society. Um, so there has to be a balance there. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree with that. Um, I think the, the, the main gist of it for me is that kind of everything conspires at the moment to obscure um, the existence and the relevance of uh, whatever you would call kind of the, the collective. Uh, like you said, you know, because because of the main virtue that we're, we're all orienting ourselves around is autonomy. The, the thing that trickles down from that is the individual's perspective. And I completely agree that it's, you know, it's, it's one, it's one extremely important perspective, but yeah, I think my, my objection is that it's, it really isn't the only one. Um, and we need to figure out a way to, to, to integrate, um, kind of, uh, you know, these concentric circles that we all exist in, uh, without decimating them. Um, and yeah, it's, it's, it's a really tricky one because like you said, you know, it's, once you go into the collective realm, there—that's the realm of of morality, of moral 
assertions of, of you know, how do we live together? Because that's essentially what morality is, is yeah, how, 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 to, how to live. Um, and that's kind of where people don't really want to, um, to, to make these claims, or at least not make them on, on, the face of, on the face of it, you know. In a way, it's kind of unpleasant, the fact that I feel like a lot of people are, are, more, um, are more chill in living in a, in a covert tyranny than they would be in having, you know, morality come back to the front and, you know, discussing it and, and you know, having it, you know, play out as, as you know, a, a prescriptive or at least a, a visible part of society. Yeah, I mean that—that's kind of the uh, the whole um, argument behind like the the formalist theories that that emerged in in these spheres a while ago. But you know, I mean, I I think that you know, in in many cases there is a a, a and and I think this is reflected in in largely the degenerated form of our moral discourse, and I, and I mean this academically more than just in the mainstream. Um, and again, going back to Charles Taylor, he argued that there's three axes of morality. You know, the first one is obligations we have to each other or rights. You know, effectively, what is it right to do? Um, you know, so the trolley problem being the most obvious and, and silly example of this. The second one being, what does it mean to live a good life? You know, what, what does it mean to live a full, a rich, a meaningful life? And the third one is, what are the standards by which I become dignified or at least worthy of dignity in the eyes of my peers or in, uh, on, the, on the converse, undignified or unworthy of dignity? Um, and Taylor argues effectively that our, our society really only focuses on that first axis that you look at. And, and he's not the first one who argued this. Um, there is a, uh, a very... Uh, very good, fairly short paper. It's called The Schizophrenia of Modern Ethical Theories by Michael Stalker. Um, and, and he argued effectively that our obsession with obligation has almost precluded us from being able to live a full life, to live a good life. And he, he used this very funny, um, or at least I find it very funny, uh, example, which is imagine you wake up in the hospital and you know you, you got hit by a car and you got a broken leg and you're, you know like this sucks and you, you wake up and your friend is standing next to you at the bed and you're like wow like you know I, I you know i didn't even know you came blah 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 and your friend is like well yes that is what friends do it's like well something would feel a little bit weird if that was how they responded you know it's like well yeah but it's like you're my friend yeah i i get that but like do you care and it's like well you know friends are supposed to be there for friends it's like okay but like this isn't there, there, something seems off there. Um, and, and, you know, this kind of comes back to the moral habit theories that, that really kind of, you know, became so prominent, you know, especially Elizabeth Anscombe kind of rebirthed Aristotelian virtue ethics, Hugh La Follette, Stalker, all of those guys um, kind of present this idea of, you know, if, if you are standing uh, somewhere and your your wife is tied up and a stranger is tied up and you only have time to save one and you spend more than maybe two seconds considering this before running to your wife there's probably something wrong with you you know like there is there you know and, and so the question becomes when it says like what does it mean to live a good life or what does it even mean to be a good person you know someone who 
almost instantaneously reacts who has the habit to do what is right, to do what is good. Like a good person instinctually feels, you know, they have, they habitually do what is right or what is good. Um, and I think that the problem is that when that stops, when, when you say that, nope, society is morally neutral, you can't have a right or good, you've precluded that question. And then you go to obligations. And of course, we now have a vastly minimized set of obligations because, you know, if it, you know, if, if it's not harm or consent, like autonomy says, do whatever you, um, and, and, and then you have these kind of vague, you know, you have to tolerate everything kind of, kind of points. And, you know, it's not to say that tolerance is necessarily bad. Tolerance just is, but the question is, what are you tolerating? Um, and, and again, you, you have this, this, uh, this serious problem in terms of, uh, making sure that you, you have a full explanation of morality. Um, and, and our society really doesn't, I mean, you know, to, to the point where you get very simple thought experiments. I mean, like the shopping cart problem that was, you know, so popular on Twitter. It's like, do you, you know, do you return the shopping cart or do you leave it? The choice is yours, you know, and it's, it's, it's a very simple thought experiment, but it begins to tap at the dam that's preventing us from asking, that's holding all of these questions back. Um, and I think it's very much tied to, to our, you know, all of this is tied together. And, and I think that sometimes it can be very, very, um, uh, how, how do I put this? It can be very, um, daunting to, to take a look at this. Uh, it's almost like, how do you eat an elephant? Um, you know, and it's, 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 you can't just take a bite cause it'll kick you in the face. Um, and you know, it, it, it's hard, but I do think that there are, you know, I've seen uh, conversions. I am a conversion story. Um, you know, I, I think that it can be done, but I think that, you know, there needs to be much more meaningful conversations in society. And I think that we need to be willing to have those as opposed to being almost having a phobia of, of moral or metaphysical conversations. Yeah, that's that's kind of what I love most about, you know, the, the space that we're in. Uh, I feel like a lot of people, you know, in, in their very own way are kind of tackling the elephant. Um, the elephant now is called this murky concept of, of post-liberalism, but, you know, it's uh, it's it's being it's being slowly chipped and chipped at. Um, so I think we're, we're running up on time a little bit. Um, before I let you go, I want to ask you the, uh, the question of the show. Uh, is there um, a subversive thinker that you think uh, is not getting enough, enough of the limelight, uh, could, could be useful for people to think uh, either you know, about morality, about, about political philosophy, or, or whatever field you think is, uh, is interesting? Yeah, I mean, I think that there is, there's this one book um, by John Safranek, it's called The Myth of Liberalism, and it is a very interesting take. It's, it's very much not metaphysical. Um, it is a, an analysis of freedom, equality, all of these liberal ideals, and demonstrating how all of them are reducible to autonomy through the lens of U.S. Supreme Court cases. Um, and it's, it's a very, it's easy to follow. It's very clear. Um, 
but it's also, you know, you, you hear names thrown around in this space. You hear Deneen, uh, you hear Moldbug. You basically never hear Safranek. Um, so I, I, I definitely recommend anyone interested in this. Um, he's a little bit too easy on conservatives. Uh, he's obviously a conservative himself, but the arguments still stand. And he does a very good job of explaining how all of these concepts break down. Um, and I think that it's very much worth a read. Excellent. Yeah, I, I had never heard of this, but that sounds sounds really interesting. I'll definitely read it. Um, thank you so much, Apex. This has been really, really fun. Um, I hope I wasn't a bit. This is my kind of my my afternoon lull, you know, being a, being this expanding creature as I am. But uh, <laughs> it, it was it was really lovely to to finally chat to you after uh, engaging so much online. Uh, and it's yeah, it's it's great to it's great to finally um, finally engage. Yeah, I mean, it, I thank you so much for having me on. This has been a really fun conversation, uh, and yeah, you know, it's it's nice to nice to talk, uh, yeah, as opposed to just kind of sending replies to each other uh, in Twitter threads. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, this is this has been great. I think that um, you know we're 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 moving our, our sphere is slowly moving towards towards some answers, um, and I, I'm excited to see how that keeps progressing. Yeah, and I think, you know, we're not going to figure it out tomorrow, and I think that's fine as well, whatever whatever the haters say. <laughs> so um, is there any place you want to point people towards, uh, a place that they should sign up? I think I recommend the Substack, but uh, if you can give me the, the complete link. Yeah, so uh, the Substack, it is apexsnotes.substack.com, A-P-E-X-S, notes. Um, you know, it's for, for now, um, you know, none of my stuff is behind a paywall. Any paid subscription is just to support me. Um, the only thing I'd ever put behind a paywall is something that I would need to spend my own money on in order to write. Um, but, you know, it's, it's, you can do that or you can follow me on Twitter. It's at Apex underscore Simaps, S-I-M-M-A-P-S. Um, but yeah, and I'm, I'm excited to, to see how all of this develops. Yeah, yeah, me too. Thanks again for coming on. All right. Thank you so much, Alex. Have a great day. If you like what you're hearing, want to see where I take it, and maybe want early access to episodes, bonus episodes, access to the AMA, or you just want to support the cause of dissident speech or my work in general, head to my Patreon at patreon.com slash aksubversive. Your donations are what keeps the lights on and makes the show possible, so thank you. <laughs>